This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, with a vote of 10 to 5, the environmental assessment for the LRT project lives on. We should have a huge round of applause at this point. Uh, uh, oh, we have some clips. Let's listen to uh, first uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead on his thoughts. We are sending a very powerful message, and that is that this transit system we are building is for everybody, and everyone will have the benefit, and that is important to me. And, of course, Councillor Donna Skelly. I believe that if we support the route that is presented, we will be making a very big permanent and costly mistake. And of course, Councillor Doug Conley. I think there's going to be a massive dis- um, disruption to King Street and throughout the downtown for three or four years. I think we're going to discourage people from coming downtown. All right. Uh, still lots of divisiveness, but that being said, certainly enough to shove it, uh, I'd say, a ways over the edge with a 10 to 5 vote. To talk more about all of this, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, he is with us now. Hello, Mayor Fred. How are you today? I am good, Scott, but I want to hear the weather for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm planning ahead. What have you got? Uh, you know what? I'll have to check on that and get back to you. You know, I'm just not right, that please. far. I'm not that far in advance, Fred. All right. Okay. All so, right. Well, I, I, I have to be. I have to look forward. I know. There you go. Uh, and once again, you're, you're making my face red here, Fred. So, Because I, I should know that, you know. What? What? You know what? And I know it right now because we've stalled long enough. Uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, some sunshine, mix of sun and cloud, a high to nineteen. Very beautiful. There That's you go. Eighteen right now. Eighteen right now in the hammer. That's you know a combination of lower and upper. By the way, uh, so you must be very happy today. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm very happy. I'm uh, I'm, I'm glad that the community is uh, going to move forward on this. Uh, this is a, a significant investment in our community, and you know I know that there are still some detractors, but I hope that uh, as of yesterday's vote, we can get on with getting on. And you know what, we can uh, we can try and tear it all apart, or we can get on with building something that's going to have long long lasting benefits for uh, for our community. You know, some of the some of the bars that people threw on on the uh, the table was uh, let's make sure it's local employment. It, that has always been the case. You know, when Kitchener Waterloo, the Leuna members that uh, many of them are here in Hamilton, actually built the uh, the uh, Kitchener Waterloo uh, Ion uh, Transit system there. Uh, it's all about fair wages and making sure that uh, that uh, we have our fair wage schedule here and that proper wages are paid to the 3,000 plus employees that are going to be here in Hamilton that are getting benefit from the jobs. And then uh, we've already gone through an exercise uh, through the lower city with an interim control bylaw, which basically freezes out the planning issues for uh, a year or a little bit more so that we can plan properly to maximize the benefit. And again, example in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, is uh, around these station stops that they've already built and defined, they've already had $1.8 billion of uh, assessment growth as a result of their uh, LRT construction. So uh, we're, on a, we're on a good path here. There is maximum benefit, and I would fully agree with Councillor Whitehead, who says that uh, this is going to be a benefit for everybody everywhere. We're expanding the entire system, not just down in the lower city. And uh, yesterday, we approved $72 million, a partnership fund with the federal government and ourselves to add additional stops, buses, and uh, and predictability and frequency on the entire transit system. So we're moving ahead, and uh, I'm, I'm happy that, uh, that uh, many have said 
Uh, we're going to, you know, once we've decided, then we're going to get on, on track and uh, get behind this thing and be critical of, uh, you know, the issues that we need to concern ourselves with, which is cost and uh, making sure that uh, this is done sustainably and cost-effectively, as we always do. But, uh, but uh, let's get on with realizing this opportunity that the province has given us. It's amazing how the direction of the wind has changed here. Uh, there lots of uh, chatter in the past about how uh, once council decides on something, whether you're for or against it, once everybody uh, you know has the vote and decides either way, it's time for all to work together and try to make the best out of it. Uh, lots complained that that wasn't happening here. Do you feel that we've sort of uh, solved that problem or certainly uh, uh, cleared a big hurdle here, Mayor, in regard to the cohesiveness of council and getting them all on board and rowing in the same direction? Well, I'm, I'm hoping so. And, uh, you know, time will tell. But if I, you know, I, uh, I, I took a lot of stock in what Councillor Collins had to say, what Councillor Colney had to say about even though they're not, uh, you know, they're not 100% supportive of this and they worry about uh, some of the issues, and I, I think we can get past those issues, but notwithstanding, that once uh, we decide, they're prepared to uh, to get on board and make it the, the best possible project that uh, it can be. And so uh, that's a positive attitude. And, uh, you know, that's the tradition here is, uh, you know, we can we can we can beat these things to to, to a pulp to to a point where, uh, you know, there's nobody sees value anymore or we can get on board and demonstrate the, uh, the, the real benefits that are going to come to this community as a result of this investment. And there there are numerous ones. Uh, they're not small, they're significant, they're long-lasting, and it really is a city-building opportunity. So if I take the councillors at their word, most of them, then uh, I suspect that uh, you know a 10-5 vote really does you know bode well for people getting on board, uh, staying with the program, being critical of uh, you know some of the issues that we need to keep our eye on, but uh, generally saying we're going to get this done. Um, where is the extra money coming from for the extension back out to Eastgate Square? Obviously, the spur line was the reason that that was scrapped in the first place uh, to allow the connectivity to go. Now, uh, Metrolinx has decided BRT will work best in that in that area. Uh, the money from the spur line was then uh, proposed to have a, a BRT A line and working on that. Uh, where does the money come from the extension? And, and, and a follow-up to that would be, are you worried that that extension out to Eastgate now will nip into the money for the BRT up the mountain A-line? Well, and then, then the reality is that uh, the BRT A-line, as, it, uh, as it's uh, defined, is, uh, is, is going to be sacrificed to, uh, to get to Eastgate. And I think that was, uh, yeah. that was certainly the message coming through here, is uh, they're, they're going to leave behind some study money for the next phase down the road. But uh, we are saying uh, now that uh, it's preferable that uh, Eastgate become the destination on the B-line all the way to McMaster. But that fulfills the the original plan, and that we uh, we do some study on the A line, but not leave money behind to actually implement. And so uh, it'll be phase two down the road. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to ignore uh, the A line from a from a transit perspective, because we're already making investments that are expanding and, and increasing frequency from the waterfront to the airport. And we do have a a service that runs there; it's just not full time. And I have no reason to believe that uh, that we can't enhance that going forward based on the investments that we're already making. So, uh, so, so truthfully, we're we're sacrificing the uh, the BRT A line that was you know announced a couple of months ago as an alternative. Didn't meet with a lot of favor for uh, members of council, and certainly got a you know pretty rough rub in the community as a whole. And I think 
most people would say that getting at the East Gate is probably the better destination uh, for the B-Line as it sits today. Uh, I, I, I can certainly understand that wholeheartedly, but are you surprised that uh, mountain residents, councillors who you know have often said this isn't going to affect us, uh, now voted to extend this as opposed to taking more transit up to their, to, to their neck well, of the woods? Well, we are, but we are taking more transit up to there. And, uh, you know, the $72 million that I mentioned earlier, a lot of it is actually geared towards enhanced north-south uh, uh, volume and frequency. And uh, the past two years, we've, uh, we've added about 25 additional buses and, uh, and, and many drivers to increase frequency north-south predominantly. And so uh, those investments are going to continue. Uh, we have a 10-year plan, and uh, part of that plan has been slightly delayed because we couldn't get the PTIP funding announcement soon enough to actually deliver the amount of buses it would require for us to up the budget to uh, pay for the drivers that would be uh, needed for that. So we delayed it uh, a year for that reason because we didn't have to tax for things that we weren't going to have to utilize in this current year. So uh, the investments are being made, and I think we can certainly assure people on the mountain that uh, they're not out of this loop at all. This is expansion of the transit service everywhere. Uh, but it also, uh, you know, we're, we're not, as we talk about transit, people always worry, well, are you forgetting, forgetting about roads? Are you forgetting about repairs and sidewalks and all the other things that need to happen? Clearly not. We're spending this year, out of this year's budget, about $100 million on roads and sidewalk and uh, sewer repairs. So none of that's to be forgotten, but uh, transit investment, because of the billion-dollar uh, enhancement that we're getting from the province, is uh, currently front and center, so we can get on with uh, finalizing that and then maintain our momentum and all the other projects that we've got going that, that's going to add benefit to our community. So what's next uh, as far as the timeline, and is there still another crucial vote that we're where we may end up where we are or where we were uh, just yesterday? Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't happen, uh, but there is another vote on the operating and management agreement, and, uh, you know, we do know that we have an order of magnitude, so some folks have suggested that we have no idea what the operating and management uh, is going to look like. That, that isn't true. Uh, you know, the outside limit is uh, $11 million, but that is offset by uh, fair revenues and, uh, and uh, assessment growth. So, uh, you know, not unlike the expressway where you put – we, we pay currently $7 million to finance and operate the expressway that was built uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and we get $14 million back because of the new assessment growth that came as a result of the, uh, the development of the expressway. So a dollar in and $2 back, there's no reason to believe that that isn't going to happen with the development that comes with uh, LRT in our, in our lower city. And so uh, the crucial vote that you're talking about probably happens sometime in June of next year. Uh, right now it's... Uh, the request, request for qualifications is out, which we basically means uh, potential bidders can uh, put in their notification of qualifications that uh, they're able to uh, pull together a, a project of this size and scope and scale, and then, uh, and then we'll head to RFPs. And the RFPs will be the telling moment when we define uh, you know, what's in the budget and what isn't in the budget. How significant was yesterday as far as bringing the city together on this and moving forward? Well, I, I think it was a huge step, and I, you know, what quite quite understand. Uh, given, in my view, a lot of misinformation that's been thrown out there, and a lot of consternation that's been created, that people are, are I have some worries, and I, I, you know, I fully understand that. But, you know, I can assure people that, uh, you know, the folks that have been supporting this on council, 
all have had a critical eye to the costing issues and, and also a critical eye to the benefit issues. And in my view and in their view, and I think uh, you'll, people will understand that overall, the benefits far outweigh any, any costs that come to it. I can't answer the issue of, you know, well, it's a billion dollars and uh, why is the province spending a billion dollars? Well, you know what, uh, my role and responsibility uh, as, uh, as mayor and council is to make sure that we get our fair share of the available transit and, and or, or road repair dollars that are out there. Um, I, I, the, the province and the federal government have both identified public transportation as a significant uh, opportunity across the country and in Ontario. <clears throat> I think we ought to align ourselves with that and take advantage of the opportunities and at the same time keep a, a very watchful eye on other opportunities to uh, to fix our roads and repair our sewers. And as I said, we're this year we're spending $100 million. So I think we've taken a giant step forward. Uh, I believe that, uh, that uh, the community at large will come around. Uh, these major projects are complicated. They're difficult. Uh, they're, uh, for the, the layperson, probably hard to understand based on the bits and pieces that they get through the media and otherwise. Our job now is to uh, get the, the public at large as, as informed as we can, letting them know the benefits and the, and the, and the, uh, the risks and, uh, and the overall objective of uh, making this a beneficial investment in the city. With a vote of 10 to 5, the environmental assessment for LRT at Council has moved on. Uh, with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, great job. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. Enjoy your day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, there's certainly been lots of news and is an ongoing situation. Parents uh, angry that schools across the province uh, are closing or potentially closing. Uh, it's happening more so, it seems, in a massive sweep at this point. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in journalist Denise Davey, and she is with us now. Hello, Denise. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So what's going on? What are you seeing happening here? Well, locally, um, you know, as you say, the sweep, um, it's being called like fastest and largest sweep of school closures in the history of Ontario. Um, locally, Burlington got hit uh, starting last October. Um, it's a very weird process. Uh, the director first announced Central and Pearson would close. Um, there was a lot of lobbying by certain groups. And um, in the meantime, uh, a park committee was set, which is basically a committee made up of parents representing each of the seven schools. Um, and then Director Miller made his, his final recommendation on Friday, which was to close um, Pearson and Bateman. All of a sudden, it came into the thing. Um, so now there's delegations planned, and then the trustees have their final vote on things uh, in June. So that's the basic uh, wrap-up of the whole process. So normally uh, schools are closing because uh, aging populations, neighborhoods yeah. aren't what they used to be. What's happening here in your mind? Is this not the same sort of thing? Well, you know, it's no, it's no question. The baby boomer era, you know, four kids in my family. I remember our street had sometimes six, seven kids, uh, mm -hmm. maximum sort of thing. But, you know, now you see, what is it, 1.2 or 3? I know a lot of families who have three kids. Um, however, you know, it's not black and white. There's different neighborhoods, and you can't just sort of slap those sort of analysis on them. Um, I'll tell you something very specific to our area. So we used to have two or three feeder schools, they're called. So these are the elementary schools that the kids would come up from grade 8 and then go into Bateman. 
so they made our local school, our biggest elementary school, full French immersion. Bateman does not have a French immersion program. So then what happens, those kids go to the nearby, like two kilometers away, Nelson School for French immersion. So they basically stripped away our feeder school. So when they say, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do, uh, your population's declined, that's absolutely not true. Um, that was a board-created policy that lowered our numbers. So you see where it just gets, it, it, this wasn't offered up to us. This is something that we had to sort of, you know, look at all, all the analysis. And um, so it, it's not black and white, and there's been a lot of those issues. But the larger issue with us is that Bateman has become the specialized special education center for the entire city, and even some kids from Oakville come here because it's so good at the services it provides. It has the widest range of services for kids in the entire city. So it draws from that. I think about 300 of the 800 children, students in this school uh, fall under the purview of um, children with autism or Down syndrome, severe physical disabilities, mental health issues. So why would that not be enough to keep it open? Well, that's the main question, Scott. I mean, in my mind, um, one of the reasons I think Bateman parents weren't rallying as hard as they were is that they trusted in some part of their brain that that the sort of there's a more fragile student population certainly more vulnerable far more vulnerable they don't transition well they've got the programs there um shouldn't we be keeping hands off and it's really really important to note this is a fully inclusive school so we have 300 of the 800 students who are in that sort of more vulnerable student population Half the school, almost half, 47%, have what's called an IEP, Independent Education Plan, which means that they have their studies slightly modified. Um, so these could be gifted students, whatever. But um, So they have all these special range. So it's a model school for inclusivity. It's not like the schools in Hamilton that closed where they were saying, you know what, they're not inclusive, they're all spec ed kids. Um, this is fully inclusive. It's completely... Um, accessibility incline. It's got the exterior ramps, elevators, air conditioning. It's got slings and hoists, which mm. are sometimes needed to toilet older students. So mm. there's all these sort of really specialty things. And it's attached to a pool that these kids use that's very important for mobility and exercise for them. And they'll lose all of that. So even the transitioning, even if the new school had all those uh, even the transitioning of students to a new school and who are in this fragile population is really, really, really difficult and, and totally unnecessary and costly. Uh, obviously, Denise, this is a situation uh, which communities are dealing with all the way across the yeah. country, I'm guessing. Uh, what is that perfect model? How do you, and I mean, I've had situations with school boards, and, and what normally happens is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Those that can yeah. organize the most uh, somehow will sway things, which is great because it's participation yeah. within the community, and you got to speak up for what you believe in. Yeah. But, you know, obviously this is a situation that's happening. We don't want to gut schools. We've talked about this in the past yeah. from certain neighborhoods because then what happens when new families exactly. uh, come in? I mean, you know, my parents are in the process of selling selling 
selling the home we all grew up in, but and they're one of the last ones to go. The school there, which they live two or three doors down from, is still jammed because new families are coming in. Yeah. So where's the balance here? How do you how do you uh, keep these schools yeah. running and, and vibrant in the community yeah. uh, until the population comes back? You know what? It's that's that's such a good question. And honestly, I can honestly say this in the in the bottom analysis of how everything has worked at the boards and at, even at the province level. This is not about our kids. It's not about what's best for our kids, and it's not about what is the best. No, this is about money. It is absolutely about money. And I can tell you what happens is because the way the funding is structured, um, $12 million will be spent to build a brand new wing on another school for these kids. The rest of the school, where they're going, is not accessible. Mm-hmm. They won't be able There's, for example, at Bateman, even the seats in the auditorium are accessible for children with disabilities. So they'll be segregated. And as much as they say it won't be, they'll be in the rest of the school, there has to be a culture change for this to happen as well. And there's been a bit of a turf war between these two schools. There were tweets flying around about from Nelson students saying, we don't want those kids at our school. All this stuff mm-hmm. was flying around. Um, it's not going to be a good situation. And honestly, I, I fear for some of those kids because that's, I, you know, as you know, I've worked on children's mental health issues for 10 years, Scott, and I know the sort of uh, fragility. One of the students yesterday at a press conference said that uh, they volunteer with those kids, and she said, if you move a desk in the classroom, it, it's, it sets them off. They, yeah. need, they need everything to be very familiar and predictable for them, and they know that. So even if they had the perfect facility, moving them would be difficult. So in the long analysis, so I was telling this $12 million thing, they don't care about that because that's capital funding which comes from the province, not out of their budget. However, lost sight of the fact that's still taxpayers' dollars. That's one big pot of taxpayers' dollars uh, that they're going to spend building an entire new wing on there when they already have it built over here. So, yeah, the long-run analysis, it's not about our kids. Kids are just numbers in the system. Uh, what is the government missing here? Is there a magic bullet? Well, I, I, I mean, mean the, again, everybody, everybody wants, you know, whether it's health, whether it's education, yeah. everybody demands more money. Parents uh, aren't, I mean, let's not, let's stop being patronizing to these parents. We're not stupid. We, we have our own family budgets and every, we know that the, but we have, the government has to budget. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But when you break down the dollars amount, even spent on the, the closure process, which was crazy. If you even break down those dollars is one thing, but the dollars that are being wasted in this whole thing, um, just bussing kids all over, uh, creating these uh, super schools, like it's just, the, it's a waste of money. So we understand that there's dollars that, that have to be, you know, um, restricted and, and everything, but you still, if you put kids at the top of the list that that's your priority, and then budget accordingly. You you would you could describe and define a healthy school, and Bateman is one of those healthy schools that has this wonderful mixture of all these kids in all different areas with like seven eight different programs, and it's all working. I mean, kids in academics volunteer to work with children who have severe disabilities. Um, the children with disabilities and autism work in the school store. They have experience there. They serve food in the cafeteria. They learn cooking and baking and woodworking because it's fully vocational school with an auto body shop. Um, 
somebody was saying the other day to see the pipe on top of the school that cost fifty six thousand dollars. It's called an extraction pipe, and it you have to have it for welding class. Hmm. That'll be bulldozed if they you know cut that school in part. And I don't know what they're going to do with it, but uh, it should be noted too. The Southeast Burlington doesn't have a community center, so that has been our community center where seniors groups meet and autism groups meet at night and everything. And so we would lose that. It seems uh, we've been talking an awful lot about education over the last several years in this province. Have we been neglecting the kids? Is that a fair statement? Have we been spending too much time talking about teachers in the unions and not enough talking about the kids? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you can't begrudge um, teachers' salaries, but, you know, you look around the school board meeting at the, um, the tr- number of superintendents, it just keeps going through the roof. There weren't, like you know, 25 superintendents when I was in school, and uh, I, I don't know how necessary it is now, and they're all well onto the sunshine list. So uh, the, the budget has gone um, crazy, and it's offside, and uh, our kids have absolutely been lost in it. Um, the whole push for French immersion, which we've talked about before, um, and I think it's fantastic. I wish I had a second language. Um, that's financially motivated because there's federal funding for each of those students that they get into one of those chairs. So, you know, you can look at that with our school that went fully F French immersion. Uh, that was one of the problems there. So, no, there's absolutely for sure that our kids are being left in the in the dust here. This uh, the plan that the board has come up with is not um, it's not a robust one. It's not something that will work. It will create an immediate um uh extra 411 students that won't have seats in the school. So if they if they do plan do what they plan and, and close Bateman, move the kids over to Nelson, there will be an automatic surplus of two, 411. And and you know the answer to that by the director, well we'll just put some portables out back. Yeah. I mean, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh how does French immersion factor into this discussion? Well, like I said, in our particular, I'm not sure that's specific to other suburban areas uh, because our areas are quite different from rural issues. But um, I think just that specific to our to our neighborhood is that our main feeder school that's huge, it's the biggest elementary school, um, has gone fully French immersion. So we've basically lost those kids. That's that's hundreds and hundreds of kids. So um, they're all going to the Nelson is the closest FI school. So, um, but I mean, there's certain things you could do. There are still 790 students in that school. Um, yes, it's under capacity, but you could introduce a French immersion program there. I mean, if you really understood the sort of, like I said, sort of vulnerability of that student population and also how they've created this inclusive model that works, if you understood how important that is, then you would boost it. You would do things to nurture that school and say, you know what, let's bring in uh, a French immersion program or another program that actually um, helps boost its population and let's not gut that end of town. But um, Are we trying to be too much? Are we trying to be too I'll diverse? I'll tell you what, Scott, we're like certainly doing it too fast because I... Well, we're, we're like, we're, 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 you know, you know, and again, we can have the discussion about one system as well. Uh, you know, that'll take us forever. But, you know, it, it seems that we're losing a great central system trying to be all of these other things that parents are using to uh, try to give their kids the edge. Right, the French immersion, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, like, like, let's be serious. And and I don't mean to. Uh, to 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 question French immersion, as you said, who wouldn't? You know, I, I wish we were all you know fluent in both languages. Um, but the point is, is uh, is this a requirement? Is this is what's needed? Is this best use of our educational dollars? Because really, at the end of the day, what this again spells to me is more votes for the left, simply because everybody knows if you want a job in the government, if you're bilingual, that's the way in. Right. So, I mean, honestly, it just seems like we're we're losing our focus here and what we're supposed to do. Where's the great singular education system that has branches with all of these other opportunities attached to it? I, I don't get that. I know. Well, there, and there's one of the many uh, questions about the educational system at this point. Really, the... It's like every little group is trying to pull their group ahead of the pack. And right. It's like, why are we not all together? You know, the same thing with, with religion. I mean, I'm a firm supporter of one system and then a religious class, which teaches all religions to all people yeah. and, and makes us, you, you know, certainly uh, educated and accepting uh, of all of these yeah. uh, religions. Well, it just seems we're trying that... very, very hard to, to, uh, to, to you know, to put the, the, the school population in silos no. and, and segment everybody. Well, well, interestingly enough, I mean, as um, as you know, there was a, a, a rally at Queen's Park yesterday. Mostly r- rural schools came down to try to get uh, Mitzi Hunter, Minister of Education, to listen to them. But at the same time, Mitzi was out talking to the press and uh, reiterated her comment that school boards need to look at creative ways to share their buildings and services. Um, and they, she's talked a lot about like community partnerships and merges with the Catholic board, which, which one of the schools did in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. However, there's no financial incentive for these boards to do that. They yeah. get money for closing schools. Yeah. Like I said the cap- Yeah, they get they get they get money for the program of the day. And they get capital funding to build the new wings. So there's yeah. no financial incentive for them to do that. And I know even as much as she keeps saying that in the media, the boards are not doing that and they have admitted they didn't do that in Halton. There was a cursory phone call, I believe, with the Catholic board. And and there was also supposed to be great discussion between the city councils and um, school boards, and then that didn't happen in Burlington. So it, it's it's broken all the rules in the guideline book for park, but it doesn't seem to matter because it's like a like a runaway train that's just uh, the point I was making before about the. Um, Basically, Bateman was put on the chopping block in early February when it really came into view as a school that potential closer, closure. And from that time till last Friday, so that's about two and a half months, that's the amount of really drilled down into the research and figure out what to do. That's how much time it takes them to decide to close the school. And, and I've said to them, you know, I, I know like Freeman Station in Burlington, they've been arguing for three years on where to put that station. Uh, if city council wanted to close the strip plaza, it would take like two years of staff research reports. There's no actual research on the total amount of dollars on where the kids would go. There's a special program called IB, International Baccalaureate, and their plan is to move that program into Central, and they actually do not know, they have no idea whether that will work. They don't know how many kids they'd get. They don't know if they'd actually be viable by then to have it up and running. And they don't know what they do with the kids that are ending that program at Bateman and have, have no busing to get to Central to finish their final year there. Hmm. They actually will say that to you. We don't know. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And you say, shouldn't you know that? 
I mean, City Hall does research. They actually know, and that's usually a dollar issue. When, when the school board does it, it's about kids. And yet they're still uh, flippant enough that they say, well, we'll just deal with it when we get there. Well, it's, oftentimes that, that's not, that doesn't work very well, that approach. So um, It's almost as if we're a, pro, a promote, you know, we want to be politically correct and promote acceptance of, uh, acceptance of everybody, but we're yeah. doing that by segregating everybody. Yeah, well, like I said, it's the, the, what's, what, what's everybody talking about in, in terms of special ed kids and what's good for every, all kids is inclusivity. Yeah, yeah. They, they ended up with this uh, school um, that has all of those components and would, is really healthy for a wide range of kids. Like I said, the kids in sort of academic and IB stream, they've developed a lot of compassion because this school is like a microcosm of the real world in, in, in a perfect world in terms of like kids getting along and, and like the IB kids volunteer with the special ed kids. Um, so it's really developed, a, and it's also set kids on certain career paths in terms of working with children with disabilities. So uh, in that, for that to have been missed off the radar of uh, the school board, it, it's really troublesome that they weren't aware that they had mm-hmm. this gem and that they're now really ready to just bulldoze it. So like I said, from a cost angle and everything, it, for them it just came down to, uh, you know, seats, empty seats and... Um, this whole sort of premise that our population's in decline in this end. But like I said, that, that's problematic because the issue is that those kids are in French immersion are not yeah. being fed into our school anymore. So you can't just say that's about population decline. So um, It seems we live in a land of extremes where every group wants their own individual rights uh, respected, but we're forgetting about the community as a whole. Well, I'm surprised. Like, at, at, when you talk about community as a whole, I think all people should be outraged about this. This is your dollars, your tax dollars, yeah. people. <laughs> a huge chunk of your money goes to education. You know, it's even if you don't have kids yeah. in the schools. Yeah, true enough. And so many people have just said, oh, well, population decline, what can you do? You, you know, fussy parent, you want it all. Not true. Yeah, this good point. Is about, this is about, like, you're getting your kids the best education, yes, with definitely within a budget, but not by just ripping apart a school and uh, tearing apart a school that's got, like, everything going for it. Denise Davy has been with us, journalist, parents at schools across the province angry over the potential school closures that are happening in a massive sweep. Denise, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Ontario's budget released later on today uh, after we're off the air in the 4 o'clock hour. Reports are saying this will be the first balanced budget in years and uh, could come with some goodies, uh, which is interesting because you're wondering where there's money to spend if there's no money. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Todd Smith is with us, uh, progressive conservative MPP for Prince Edward Hastings and is with us now. Hello, Todd. How are you today? Doing great, Scott. Yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So what are your thoughts? What do you expect to see later today? Well, uh, I think a lot of what the government plans to do in this year's budget has uh, been released already. You know, they take all of the excitement out of it because they release all these details prior to. Um, but, uh, but I think what we're going to see is that the government is going to announce that they're balancing the budget. They've said that time and time again. Uh, what we're saying, though, and what uh, the independent... Um, uh, financial accountability officer here at Queen's Park and most financial professionals in Ontario are saying is that it's not actually balanced. It's an artificial balance. The government has used uh, the sale of one-time assets 
like Hydro One and LCBO property and OPG property. And, uh, and they're also counting on um, these union surpluses. Uh, and, and so it's a phony balanced budget. Basically, it's an excuse uh, for the government to say, hey, look, we balanced the budget. Now we can spend like crazy again. And, and, uh, and that's what I think what we're going to see today is, is it's going to be like Christmas in, uh, what month are we in now, April, late April? <laughs> so as you mentioned, a lot of this has already been announced, the rebate on uh, hydro by punting it into the next, uh, for the next generation, uh, cooling the house market, a boost to child uh, care subsidies. So what are they going to pull out of the hat today that will make people stand up and take note? Or is this just a packaging, a repackaging of all of that? Uh, yeah, good question. I'm not exactly sure what to expect. I mean, they talked about their plan uh, when it comes to trying to create uh, a fairer electricity grid uh, and, and uh, rates in the province. But they haven't released any of the legislation for that yet. I think it was probably seven or eight weeks ago I was talking to you about their plan, and they still haven't uh, put forward a bill in the legislature. Maybe that will be included in today's budget. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I think uh, a lot of the things that you already mentioned are, are going to be re-advertised today by the finance minister in his uh, so-called uh, budget. It was interesting today because we were calling it an artificial budget, and I hadn't heard this term for a while, but somebody said to me, it's a fudget budget. And uh, that's like an old school hmm. terminology for it. But anyway, uh, what, the, what the Financial Accountability Officer has said to us is that the government's not dealing with the structural deficit that exists in the province. So they're masking over the structural deficit with the sell-off of Hydro One and LCBO and OPG properties and other things. And we still are spending more uh, than we're taking in. So over the next five years, his office says, we're going to go right back into multi-billion dollar deficits again. Uh, just uh, the other day, on uh, we heard uh, the media talking about how Donald Trump, uh, his new tax plan, and uh, cutting taxes uh, for corporations in the United States. How do you think that's going to affect Ontario? Well, I, I think it's going to affect Ontario greatly, and, and part of the reason why is because the Ontario government has done such a poor job at making sure that Ontario remains competitive. Uh, when it comes to energy costs, and, and I'm the energy critic, so I mean this is near and dear to my heart, we're seeing electricity prices soaring above uh, most other jurisdictions across North America, which makes it extremely difficult for us to be competitive when it comes to manufacturing jobs in particular, and then they throw on the cap-and-trade tax on top of that, um, and that's making it increasingly concerning for our job creators here. And I know there are a lot of manufacturers. Uh, I just did a tour through Sarnia Lampton last week and did some roundtables in the uh, gas, oil, and chemical sector, and, and these companies are looking to expand in North America but unfortunately now they're turning their focus on the U.S. Gulf Coast or, or a new hub uh, just west of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, we have to make sure that Ontario is sending the right messages to those who want to create jobs that we're open for business and we're going to be competitive for them. When talking about the energy file, uh, do you think this will be touched on? Do you think there will be incentive for business to come? Uh, in the budget? Or even stay, yes. Yeah, well, I, you know, and that's the concerning thing. I mean, we've been hearing from manufacturers who are, who are being told by members of this Liberal government that, well, it, you know, if one of you decides to leave, three more are moving in. Well, that's a slap in the face, first of all, to the manufacturers who have been here and operated uh, uh, manufacturing facilities for 20, 30, 60, 80 years in this province uh, from the government. Well, you, know, you can leave, it doesn't matter. More jobs are being created. I'd like to know where those jobs are being created, first of all, and they're certainly not uh, the 
quality of, of manufacturing jobs, uh, which provide uh, great spin-offs to our local economies. So a lot of them are part-time jobs that are being created. You know, I hope that there's something in there that actually addresses the root problem when it comes to energy, but we haven't been given any indication that that's going to happen. The plan that they've announced so far just kicks the can down the road and uh, makes our kids and our grandkids pay for the electricity mistakes of today uh, by creating... $25 billion more debt at, at Ontario Power Generation. So uh, they haven't actually fixed the problem. They're just kicking it down the road. Uh, on the energy situation, I remember talking to somebody from a manufacturing so- association saying basically that the larger companies are getting incentives uh, and electricity rebates, but the medium-sized companies aren't. And what she was worried about was that, as you said, these companies are ready to expand, but, inspe- and, but, but instead of expanding here, they're going to expand uh, across the border, uh, across the border, is there room or relief for those small to medium-sized businesses that are suffering from energy prices? No, those are the ones that are falling through the cracks. And and the plan that was announced, um, as you say, um, lowered the threshold for what they call the ICI program, uh, which is an incentive for our industrial users. But they have to meet a certain um, number of kilowatt hours per month in order to qualify for that. And it's a very cumbersome program in the first place. And many of the small and medium guys don't use enough electricity to qualify for the program. So, so they're hurting, and uh, they're being lured away by low-cost energy jurisdictions, uh, certainly the ones that I've talked to, and I've talked to many over the last couple of months that have been on the energy file. Um, they're regularly getting calls from places like South Carolina or the U.S. Gulf Coast or, or just across the border in Ohio, Pennsylvania, or, or upper state New York um, to, to go locate there because of the amount that they'll save on their energy bill. And so you're seeing the United States trying to pluck uh, the jobs from Ontario. And and, uh, there's a lot of manufacturers who are just... And and it's not just one thing, Scott. I mean, this is like the electricity price. It's the cap-and-trade price. It's the cost of over-regulation in Ontario. All of these things, the cumulative effect of, of government policies just killing these guys. And they just want to see some kind of recognition from the government that they get it, and they're not getting that. Todd Smith has been with us, PC, MPP, and energy critic from Prince Edward Hastings. Uh, Todd, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. All right, Scott. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Queen's University labor and political history professor, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Christo. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time, Christo. Always appreciate it. Uh, what are you expecting out of today's budget? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we can't predict the future, but things like hydro bills, the housing market, a boost to child care, that's already sort of already dropped. What are you expecting later today? Yeah, I mean, what I'm, think, what I'm looking at is, is, you know, this is basically, in a sense, the start of the next election. You know, this mm. is going to be... Uh, you know, a political budget, and all budgets are political, of course, you know, it's, it's politics, but, but, you know, we are, you know, more than a year out, but the, the current government is unpopular. The current leader of that government is even more unpopular. Um, and this budget could be seen as a way to, to, you know, either whether it's trying to build general popularity or target certain interest groups. And I think, like, as you mentioned, whether it's lowering hydro bills or increasing you know, childcare availability and or affordability, or whether it's, you know, controlling rent prices, or whether it's the announcement of the, the basic income pilot, 
there seems to be a kind of effort to, to show that the government is moving forward. Uh, so you, you're, you're saying that this will signal the start of at least their campaign. The others have probably started long ago. Uh, signaling the start of their campaign, This from here on in, you think it'll be all election all the time? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you, I think you're right in saying that maybe it started earlier than this, but I think this is going to be one of the first official indications. I think you will see, you know, the election become more and more of an issue. Um, mo- a lot of parties um, are already nominating candidates for that election. You know, uh, that's that's been a reality in the NDP, at least uh, as far as I've seen. Um, I think you will see that. And I think on the summer, you know, the summer tours, a lot of politicians do a lot of, you know, uh, you know, MPP hopefuls do that, you know, this government will be, you know, there will be a kind of referendum on this. And if there is a, you know, a, you know, good things in the budget from certain people's perspectives that could win them back to the government or, you know, for some people it could be too little too late. I do see the budget as kind of fitting that, that, that need right now. What do you think the tone of, what do you think the tone of this budget will be? Will it be about good times are back or still selling restraint or uh, what do you think the tone's going to be? Well, you know, my expectation is that the liberals, in Ontario succeed when they, when, frankly, when they pretend to be NDPers during the campaign and act as mm. more or less left-leaning PCs when in power. And I think you'll see something of that sort when they try to position themselves as we have to stop Patrick Brown, much like they, you know, we have to stop Tim Hudak, and we're going to do it with mildly progressive policy. So you will see, for instance, things around perhaps rent control. You will see you know, an effort to make hydro prices cheaper. You will see something on child care. The basic income guarantee is certainly a part of that. You will see, for instance, them loosening up negotiations with um, teachers and other public sector workers, all in an effort to prepare themselves to be the anything but conservative, you know, party in 2018. The question is, will it work given the unpopularity of the current leader? And two, given some of Andrea Horwath's you know, pretty ambitious promises that are kind of staking out the left ground in a way that maybe she didn't as do as well in 2014. Uh, do you think the focus will be largely on the NDP as opposed to the PCs? Boy, and it's, it's, it's a, a tough line to walk, isn't it? It is. It is. I think, you know, it, it's, it, to a certain degree, it's pick your poison. But mm. one of the realities is that, you know, the, the liberals often do well when they really can you know, again, position themselves as the, the broad choice of, of non-conservative voters. You know, be they NDPers or, you know, the Greens are maybe less of a thing here, but, but you know, federally, if, if, if Justin Trudeau was successful because he was able to not so much take votes from conservatives, but to pile on strategic, uh, you know, anti-conservative voters from the NDP and the Greens and then use the first-past-the-post system to his advantage. And the Liberals, again, if they're able to, to keep that kind of percept that 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 kind of coalition if you will and they could find some success but you're right on the other hand you know the conservatives are polling very well and the liberals might find the temptation to throw some bones that way it, it, it puts them in a real tight rope uh, not surprisingly, uh, the PC MPP, uh, Todd Smith, we had had on just uh, before you, the energy critic said this is an artificial balance. Uh, I'm sure you could probably say that about every budget. Uh, they're selling it as a balanced budget, first balanced budget in a decade. Is it an artificial balance? You know, I'm not, I'm not strictly an expert. I'm not strictly an expert on that. So I wouldn't want to say in a definitive sense, but I would say and agree with you that 
you know, most budget, balanced budgets are usually based on some kind of um, accounting and, you know, not nothing necessarily scandalous, but it's, you know, accounting is not a, a, a right. fully, it, it's an art as much as it's a science in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, you can interpret it in that sense. For for me personally, and I don't know about other voters, I don't know if that'll be the major issue. And, and frankly, I feel like the, the liberals don't have credibility on that issue with the people who think ballot bud, balanced budgets are a major issue. So you don't think balancing the budget's going to register with Ontario voters? I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I personally don't think so. And again, I think it might register with some voters, but those voters don't believe Kathleen Wynne and don't believe the Liberal. What about no, the health of... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that, that's... Sorry. What about the health of the province? Uh, is Ontario out of the woods? How... how uh, what's the feeling right now on the business in the future? I mean, I think some people feel that there's a lot of problems in Ontario. You know, be it, you know, there, there is a, uh, you know, there is a deficit that can be fair, that's seen as fairly significant. Um, and then there's a lot of social deficits, whether it's housing issues or daycare issues or, or you know, perceptions around health care and hydro and whatnot that have to be balanced. I mean, on the other hand, Ontario is, you know, still a major part of the Canadian economy. People from all over the world want to come and live here and study here and, and, and travel here. You know, so I kind of feel like, there's, there's a kind of mixture of optimism and, and pessimism. I would say that, you know, there are, there are ways out, but those ways are political. You know, Ontario, you know, could, relative to some provinces, we don't pay a whole lot of tax. So there's a political question of, do we solve the deficit through cuts or do we solve the deficit through tax increases? And those are political discussions. But, you know, I do feel like, you know, for the most part, I don't know if people are down on Ontario, but people are down on the people running Ontario. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of Kathleen Wynne's problems, self-inflicted, the mismanagement of the energy file, a problem we didn't have to have. Some are even blaming the housing crisis at this point on th- their past governments by being too restrictive on creating new stock. Is that going to resonate at all, do you think, during this campaign, that a lot of this stuff was were problems that were self-created. Yeah, I think, I think to a certain degree that's fair. I mean, with housing, that's a multi-generational issue. Some people have said, well, part of the problem is there was at times too restrictive building. Other people will say that the loophole on the, the 1991 uh, loophole on new builds that kind of exempted them from rent controls can create the problem of, you know, you know uh, too high of prices. Some other people have said that a lack of restrictions on Airbnb-type rentals have taken a lot of rentals out of the rental market and have basically made them, you know, quasi-hotels. All of these things are valid. I think on the hydrophile and on a lot of things specifically, you know, Kathleen Wynne and the, and the Liberals um, really haven't atoned themselves for, you know, the Dalton McGinty era. And there was a real sense that, you know, they got rid of McGinty, they're bringing in Kathleen Wynne, she's going to be different, she's going to do politics differently, Frankly, I think a part of that was she's, you know, she's an openly lesbian woman. She's going to bring this progressive aura to the Ontario political scene. And I don't think a lot of people have seen that. So I think, yeah, there, there is a sense that, you know, there was, a, there was some goodwill in 2014, frankly. I mean, a lot of it was anti-Hudak, but there was some goodwill. And a lot of that goodwill has kind of dissipated. Christo Avalis has been with us, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor, of course, the provincial budget dropping later this afternoon after 4 o'clock. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thank you for having me again. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.